When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ah, McDonald's. Billions and billions served. What goes through your mind when you see the golden arches? For me, I remember my very first time in McDonald's. It was the late 70s, I think. We'd have preferred not to have gone on strike. We had no alternative. I remember going to McDonald's, and it was exciting because at that time, there were wimpies and little chefs in the UK, but the idea of McDonald's seemed so American. And I was very enamoured with all things American at the time, partly because I'd watched a lot of American TV growing up as a kid, watching the Dukes of Hazard and Happy Days and Dallas, of course. And so this was a culmination of all that. And then sometime in the late 80s, I found myself in America. I was in Los Angeles with my great friend, Will, who I've mentioned many times on this podcast, and my other great friend, George. And we'd noticed that in a few days' time on the other coast in New York City, our great hero, Lou Reed, from the Velvet Underground, was going to be playing a gig. So we thought, well, to hell with LA, let's drive cross-country to go and see Lou Reed. As it turns out, the Lou Reed gig was cancelled because he broke his foot on the Wawa pedal. And so we, we drove cross-country non-stop, all for nothing. However, the drive itself was interesting because we had absolutely no money, obviously. We were three 19-year-old kids. We had a 1963 Volkswagen Beetle, seafoam green, and we had no money. Gas was cheap, luckily, so we had just enough money to get us across there to pay for petrol. Eating was another matter, but McDonald's actually became our saviour because at the time, McDonald's had a special offer whereby you'd buy a drink and on the side of the cup, there were little peel-away tokens and each token you'd get a free thing to eat. So you'd get free French fries or a free Big Mac or a free cheeseburger, whatever it was. So we'd collect all these cups that people had thrown away and would peel off the tokens because people would forget to peel off the tokens and we'd get loads and loads of free McDonald's. So much McDonald's, we kind of made ourselves sick. <laughs> we couldn't eat anymore. In fact, one point, I decided to do a, a science experiment and I tested the structural integrity of a Big Mac by impaling it on the aerial of the car and driving the car on the freeway to see how long it would last. I have no idea. I can't remember how long it did last. Quite a long way. Anyway, 
Hello, welcome to Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. Thank you very much for your company. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. I'm Dallas Campbell. So, McDonald's, crikey, there's not many brands quite as evocative as McDonald's. Say it, and it means something to everyone. You'll either love it or you'll remember it as a kid or you absolutely hate it. For a while, for non-Americans, it did, as I mentioned, seem to capture that essence of America, of Americana, of American values. So today it's the origin story of McDonald's. We're going to be talking about the original McDonald brothers who came to California to set up their first restaurant. We're going to meet Ray Kroc, a name you may have heard of from a movie starring Michael Keaton, who more than anyone else turned McDonald's from just a roadside restaurant into a national and then a global phenomenon. We're going to be talking about the love of Ray's life, not Ronald McDonald, but Joan Mansfield, his third wife, who after Ray's death spent billions of dollars in incredible, very positive ways. My guest today to explore all of this is Lisa Napoli, author of Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and The Woman Who Gave It All Away. Listen, just before we start talking about McDonald's and 50s restaurants, of which I'm a keen advocate, I've got a copy of your book in front of nice, me. Nice, thank you. Hardback, by the way. Excellent. From Rochester Library. Rochester, New York or Minnesota? New York. Okay, yeah. that's very funny because I'm working on a project now for a man who is from Rochester. Oh, there you How go. How interesting. I'm so glad that you have that copy. So Lisa's book, Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and the Woman Who Gave It All Away. Very intriguing. And actually, just before we start again, another parenthesis, I'm looking at your back cover. It says that you were inspired to write this book by public artwork with mysterious provenance. And now I'm fascinated to know what it was that inspired you to write a book about McDonald's. Yeah, it wasn't about the Big Mac or the filet of fish It was because here in Los Angeles, actually more specifically in Santa Monica, near the Santa Monica Pier was a giant nuclear mushroom cloud sculpture. Hmm. It looked really like a cell phone tower, but it was depicting a nuclear mushroom cloud in chain link and it was falling down. And I used to cover arts for the radio here. And one day I got a call about this sculpture being in disrepair and it was unclear what was going to happen to it. And the person who called me was a peace activist who was extremely upset that Mm. this sculpture Mm. called Chain Reaction was going to go away. So I went to interview him and to look at the sculpture to see what was wrong with it. And I said to him, well, who paid for this thing in the first place? Why don't you just go back to whoever had installed this piece to begin with? And he said, well, the person who paid for it is dead and you will know who she is. I said, I will. He said, yeah, she's Joan Croc, the heiress to the McDonald's fortune, and she's dead, so she can't step up. But no one is supposed to know that she's the person who paid for this sculpture. So I stood there under this sculpture of a nuclear mushroom cloud with my microphone and this hippie, and I thought, why did Joan Croc pay for this sculpture? And what does it have to do with McDonald's, or does it? 
And that's what unleashed five years of my life. And that book, Ray and Joan, is trying to find out those answers because she was fascinating. I remember the first time I went to McDonald's. It was in Macclesfield. You won't have heard of Macclesfield. No, no. It's near Manchester. Well, ish. But they had a McDonald's in like, I can't remember. It must be 1978 or 79, maybe a bit earlier. And for me, it was mind blowing because suddenly... All that Americana that I'd fallen in love with watching Happy Days on TV had come true. It was kind of the symbol of modernity. So it was a kind of transformative experience. I can understand people being in awe of McDonald's. I guess. It's hard, of course, for me, having grown up in this country, although I grew up in New York in the 70s, where fast food joints weren't as plentiful as they are today, even there. Hearing that and hearing what you're saying just worries me because there's so much more to this crazy, huge country where I was born than than that. So, Although I remember when McDonald's first opened in Moscow in Red Square, you know, queues around the block. It was kind of, this was a big deal. But of course, the Russians didn't know how to eat a hamburger like this. And they thought you'd eat it kind of bit by bit. So they'd take the top... (laughs) the top lid of the roll off and eat that and then they'd sort of scrape the lettuce and the sauce and then eat that then a patty and sort of ate it sort of all the way down I love that image and that's so scary oh boy it is scary funny enough the last time I ate a Big Mac was in Red Square I went to that McDonald's in Red Square a few years ago. So. Let me tell you that I don't think I've ever eaten a Big Mac if I really? have it with so many. Oh, come on. the truth is, and they cut that out of the book, which I was very sad about. Mm. I do not eat at McDonald's. I'll get a coffee from McDonald's. Tomorrow we're going on a road trip, so I'll okay. buy a coffee there. But I'm not a McDonald's eater or well, fan. because it divides people down cultural lines, you see. The kind of the middle classes are all very funny about McDonald's. 100%. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. Okay, let's talk about McDonald's. Sorry, that was my preamble. That's the end. We haven't even started. Anyway, it's a great story. The two McDonald brothers. Okay, so who are they? Dick and Mac McDonald. Dick and Mac, thank you. Let's start there. Okay, so let's start with Dick and Mac McDonald, who are living in New Hampshire. and Live they free or die. Live free or die. Wow, there you, you know your American oh, stuff really yeah, well. Yeah. So they decided that they wanted to come west, as many people did in the early part of the last century in search of a better life for themselves. And they landed in Los Angeles at the dawn of the movie industry. And they were trying to get into the movie industry, not as actors, but behind the scenes, all those essential workers who make the movie industry as it was coming up happen. And they wound up, after hauling sets and doing some trucking work, deciding that they really wanted to work completely on their own. So they moved to a more remote part of Los Angeles, which was not quite yet the mass city it is today, of course. And they moved and decided to start an orange juice stand because there were so many darn orange juice trees. I, I, I'm sorry, orange juice trees. There were so many if orange If life throws trees. oranges at you, then that's what you're going <laughs> to... What was their background? Were they sort of working class family? Yes, or? they were. Their father had worked in a factory right. and he had okay. lost his Got job it. and they saw that, you know, at any moment you could be disposed of at a job. Their father was getting older They had an intrepid spirit and they wanted to take control of their fortune. And why not do it in a place where it was more of a sort of blank slate? And that's exactly what happened. They saw those orange trees and bought a juicer and catered to this emerging roadside crowd of people, which this is why I love this story, Dallas, because it's not about fast food at all. It's about the evolution of our society or devolution. 
evolution of our society as it industrialized. So the brothers squoze those oranges squoze. for Nicola Glass. Nice. Is it squeeze? Is it squoze? It's probably squeeze, but I'm now forever going to say squoze. Yeah, look that's it up. Better. It's better. They squoze. And I write books. Yeah. They had this orange juice stand. From there, they developed into food, basically just a roadside stand. Because think about it. When the roads were first being built, there wasn't any infrastructure. And if you had a car or you went on a drive with somebody who had a car, eventually you'd need to eat something. And so these guys were part of a small movement of people who were catering toward people, motorists and families and touring around. Was there a kind of, at that time, a roadside culture in America? I'm thinking of on the road. I'm thinking of Jack Kerouac. I'm thinking of Route 66. Oh, this is way, way before that. This is just after the Great Depression. So just as the roads were starting to be paved, and no, no, there was no interstate highway system. Much of the country, much of the world was just undeveloped. And so it was just grove after grove after grove. But as roads were carved out, and as suburbs began to be built, people were experimenting with this new thing of a car. Like the first time you text messaged, you didn't know who the heck to text message because everybody wasn't doing it yet. People were running around a little bit. And these brothers were at the early, early, early start of that movement, of course, which transformed our entire society. I've always been sort of fascinated and slightly in love with the American road culture of 50s and the 60s and, and what have you. So what did they start, like a diner, a restaurant? So they went from orange juice squozing through to flipping burgers. After squozing lots of oranges, they wanted to offer a little bit more. And there's only so much profit you can make in a nickel a glass of orange juice. And they built a little shed and started serving food. But all of society was learning how to be mobile in a way that it had not been before. And so they needed to do something that was a quick serve in the sense of, or delivered to the car. You love the car so much, you didn't want to get out of it to eat. And this was also a time in society, it's very hard for people to think about this, that we haven't always been an eat-out culture, even as you just described when you were a kid. People were not into fast food or eating out. You ate at home, both for financial reasons and social reasons. But these guys recognized that if people were motoring on the back roads of, or the developing roads of California, that they might need something to eat if they hadn't packed a picnic. And so they made quick-serve food, something that you could get quickly, easily, not have to sit down with a plate and a fork and a knife and a tablecloth. And that's what they opened as their precursor to what we now know of as McDonald's. So they invented this idea of speedy service. That sort of didn't exist at the time, really, that idea of drive-in, drive-through, automated service. Well, other people recognized this. They were not the people who invented the concept of quick serve food. They just were one of many industrious people who were squoozing oranges on the side of the road or making hot dogs or doing something to service this growing market. And they just happened to be very efficient. They were also fanatically clean, which was extremely important in their future success and at any success. People, as they got used to eating out, they didn't want to see trash everywhere. And they didn't want to look at the counter and say, oh, I'm not going to eat that. These guys were super clean and they were developing that early. So basically they had one restaurant. Were they interested in franchising? Did they suddenly have a, a few restaurants or was it just one? 
what was on the menu. They were two brothers working hard to keep one restaurant going. Anybody who knows knows how hard the restaurant business is. And people were coming by and enjoying this concept and saying, hey, that would be cool where I live in mm. Phoenix or wherever they lived. And the brothers said, okay, well, we'll sell you the blueprint for this speedy service system, but we can't get involved because we're here. You know, we're working two shifts ourselves. One brother did one, one brother did the other. They didn't have the wherewithal or interest in expanding, yeah. but they recognized that other people were interested in it. So they figured out a way to sell the template, if you will. Here's how much meat you buy. Here's where you order this many hamburger buns from a local supplier. So it didn't look like it does today. And they didn't mind if you took it and you named it Dallas's and mine was called Lisa's. They were selling the format. So they were selling the speedy system. This is how to make it profitable by being, you know, very, very... Efficient. I efficient, mean, it was inefficient. Yes. yes. If you want a hamburger joint wherever you live, follow these blueprints, pay us a thousand bucks, I think it was, which was a lot of money then. Yeah. Not insignificant now, but it was really a lot. And pay us this money and, uh, you know, you can check in with us every once in a while and we'll tell you this is what you're doing wrong. I am looking at a photo of, I think, the oldest McDonald's. But it's got that gold nut. I think it's in Downey. It's just outside of L.A. Is the one in Downey the first one or which one I is I believe that? that that was the third McDonald's. It's the oldest existing McDonald's. Ah. But the arches were arresting yes, the arches. as you drove down a road. All the new proprietors of mostly food venues wanted to catch your eye. So they created something arresting. And mm. this arch, initially it was a single arch, then it became a double arch. That was seen as a good way to bring people in. Was the arches not just the arches of an M? The M of McDonald's. That's what I thought it was. That's what they eventually became. Okay. At first, they were a little bit more peaked than the M, and they might have been evocative of the M. The architecture is really interesting. What do we call it? Googie architecture? That 50s diner kind of retro, lots of kind of spaceship style fins and points. Yeah, and and that whole idea was I had to grab your attention as you were driving down the road because brands did not exist as we know them today. Back then, it was a crucial way of signifying to prospective clients and repeat clients that Mm. you are here, you are coming close to us. Sex. It might surprise you to know that it's been around for a while now. In fact, we are all the living, walking, breathing, talking proof that sex has been around for a long time. And over on the Betwixt the Sheets podcast with me, Kate Lister, I will be rooting around for the kinkiest, quirkiest stories in the history of sex, scandal and society. Or in other words, the best bits. Well, at least I think so. From bras to BDSM, from African warrior queens to witches, join me as I bed hop throughout time and civilizations to get under the cover with the most fascinating things that we've been doing, not to mention the downright weird. For example, did you know that men in ancient Greece were so turned on by a naked statue of Aphrodite that it had to be protected by guards? We have accounts of men trying to have sex with the statue. It caused a sensation. And that university professors once moonlighted as grave robbers? We were executing less and less people, so Mm. there was a real shortage. If you want to hear about all of this and more, then join me betwixt the sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Enter Ray Crock. Tell us about Ray Kroc. So Ray Kroc, back to the efficiency thread here, he was from Chicago, and he was a pianist, a very skilled pianist, but to make a living in addition to his piano playing, which he did live on the radio, he sold paper cups. Again, sounds kind of ho-hum, but then paper cups were the technology of its day because that enabled people to be more portable as they drank or if they were at the ball game or if they were at the lunch counter. So he got from that into the milkshake machine business. He was mesmerized by this milkshake machine that allowed a soda fountain at a luncheonette counter in a city to make six milkshakes at one time as opposed to just one. Hmm. And there was an order placed for this milkshake machine by this little place in San Bernardino, California. And Ray said, wow, what the heck? Why would this place need so many of these milkshake machines? There must be something going on there. So Ray was either out here for a trade show or just had come out here and paid a visit to McDonald's. And he stood outside and was rapturous as he ate the hamburger and the fries. And he saw other people rapturously devouring this hamburger and these fries and basically thought, wow, there's something here. What am I going to do? And that's how their business association began. He approached them and said, look, you got something good here. They said, we're working our tails off. We can't work any harder than we already are. He said, I think I know how to take you to the next level. And they agreed to try that. What was it they actually tried? Like, what was the secret that made McDonald's McDonald's? That's an enormously complicated answer. And it didn't happen right away. And in fact, there's, you know, all sorts of mythology and erroneous movies that suggest that it happened very rapidly. It didn't. It was very precarious. But basically, in answer to your question, what Ray did was he franchised. He had this idea of taking this McDonald's speedy system and selling it in different municipalities. Because again, all of America at that stage 
which was undergoing this vast period of development. Suburbs mm. were being carved out, and all of these cities that were developing needed places like this for the same reason that they needed it here in Southern California. And he, Ray, as a traveling salesman of milkshake machines who knew all sorts of lunch counters and other sorts of establishments, knew that this was going to be the case. And so he had this grand vision because of what he did for a living that they could replicate this McDonald's idea in other places. And that, of course, if you as a local person in Milwaukee wanted to do that, you may not want to invent it from scratch, but you might want to buy the formula from these guys in San Bernardino. And that's exactly what he did. I suppose back then, branding as we recognize it didn't really exist. The idea that human beings love the familiar one loves to go to McDonald's and know exactly what you're going to get. There's no surprises. Right. It's easy. Did Ray and the McDonald brothers understand that like before they did it? Or did that kind of occur to them? It's like, oh my God, having this kind of branding, having this franchise sameness. I can't really imagine anything at that period similar that they copied from? Well, there were. It, railroad stations, which were still the predominant mode of transit, there were these places, Fred Harvey cafeterias in these places, okay. but they were usually regional, as you say, and you're very correct in what you're saying about branding, but it wasn't just that. It was also that we didn't have the capacity to move food around the country. I mean, Singer Sewing Machine was an international brand, but that was a sewing machine. Mm. And cars, of course, were brands. Those were different. But yes, mass media is what enabled all of this branding stuff to really take flight. And of course, it didn't take flight overnight. It happened gradually, embryonically over decades. But in answer to your question, the McDonald's brothers thought this was ridiculous, that you in Milwaukee would want to have a McDonald's. Why would you have a McDonald's? You would call it Campbell's, because why not? It was your restaurant. Ray was beginning to see the bigger picture, partially because he worked in radio. So he saw the power of radio to transform a community. And at that point, it was mostly community-based. It's a very yeah. complicated story. Everybody wants it to be a simple, like, oh, a hand hamburger. And I'm not saying you do, but as I'm talking, I'm realizing I must sound like a little bit of a crazy person because there's so many tentacles and so many no, things you don't. happening. You're making complete sense. This idea of branding and this sort of explosion that happened, and you're absolutely right, the power of mass media, suddenly radio coming along, and then obviously later on in, in the 1950s, television coming along. The visual language of McDonald's, I'm interested in sort of where that all came from. So for example, the golden arches, and some there's a clown guy. Where did all that how did all that happen? All of that was later. The brothers basically were making a good, reliable hamburger, a good, reliable French fry, a good, reliable milkshake, and a couple of other things. This whole branding thing wasn't their bailiwick. It wasn't even Ray's bailiwick. It was this team of people who he assembled. But see, this is why this is such a great story, because it went from being a little pop-and-pop place that was doing really well. I mean, they were making good money. They were working very hard for it. And and it attracted attention to catching the attention of Ray, who had a slightly bigger vision or a much bigger vision, a nationwide vision. And then from there, it graduated to the idea of it had to be similar. It had to replicate itself in each market similarly. It couldn't deviate from the formula because as people got more comfortable with traveling and were taking road trips, they wanted to see something 
familiar, especially since there was so much bad stuff out there, I would feel better going into a place if I knew it had a reputation. And that also indelibly intertwines with the whole rise of advertising and public relations and the whole idea of, as we're talking about, branding. But it wasn't out of the gate. The way today, if we were to start a coffee joint, we would come up with a name and a brand and a visual language and all the places would look very similar and the menus would be exactly the same and the people would be dressed. When did McDonald's just become everywhere? When did it go from being a few franchise restaurants to an absolute monster? Like Nowhere can you go in America without just the road skyline with M's everywhere. As America built and developed... As more and more McDonald's opened alongside the building and development of American cities and suburbs and roads and highways, in answer to your question, Mm. it was like the text message. It didn't just explode overnight. It gradually infiltrated our culture over time. And it was 1965 when McDonald's went public on the stock market. And that's a sort of sea change moment, of course, for a company, because it goes from being a private concern to a public one. And so all bets are off in terms of governance and that kind of situation. But it was embryonic. It grew. Mm -hmm. The baby was born. And then you know people got their hands on it, took it internationally. I wrote a book about CNN. It's the same sort of thing. When CNN started, there were a million subscribers in the US. Very few homes had cable. It didn't even occur to them to make it international. It, why would people internationally want to watch news in the US when we're not even sure what the news is going to be? It's the same sort of thing with the hamburger or with McDonald's specifically. It didn't occur to Ray Kroc at the very beginning that this would become a major international organization. But over the course of decades, it exploded. It's interesting kind of watching McDonald's over the years, seeing how it changes culturally with whatever the zeitgeist is. I mentioned Ronald McDonald, the clown that was sort of around in the 80s, but that's all kind of slowly gone now. Clowns are no longer in fashion and McDonald's has slightly changed. And yet that standardisation, like a McDonald's in London is going to taste the same as a McDonald's in Red Square or in San Bernardino. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Although I had a friend in college who worked in one in Switzerland and said the meat quality was better there. But that was also a long time ago. But I never answered your question about the clown. As with many of the ideas that came out of McDonald's in the earliest days, now it's all corporate and MBA and nothing happens, you know, accidentally or organically. Back then was one early franchisee in Washington, D.C., who commissioned the idea of this clown because one of the ways not to like in hamburgers to the drug culture. But one of the ways that McDonald's got people hooked was by being family friendly. There was a lot of concern in those early days about what is my kid eating? Why is my kid not eating at home? Why are we not having a family meal together? So the earliest franchisees recognized that they needed to do deep dive public relations with local communities. And one way they did that was by making friends with school districts and sponsoring little league teams and all kinds of stuff like that, that was outreach. And so the clown was one way, again, back before we had 24 seven TV and kids could sit and transfix by their iPhone and whatever they were watching. It was a big deal. If on a Saturday you had a clown outside your McDonald's in suburban Washington and invited people, you know, with a TV ad and said, bring your kids down. They're going to be free balloons. So that was that was the genesis of the clown, Ronald McDonald. We should do an episode on the invention of the clown. When you talk about clowns now, everyone kind of runs away because right. it's that evil, evil, weird 
clowns now. But I also have to say here that I didn't write this book because I wanted to write about McDonald's. I wrote it because I wanted to write about Joan. And the only way I could sell a book about Joan was to write about race. So Joan was a singer. She was a singer in the movie. And the movie The Founder is highly factually inaccurate. Oh, the one with um, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Yeah. I like that movie, actually. Uh, people love that movie, but it's factually inaccurate. Well, why ruin a good story by being exactly. factually accurate? Exactly. Tell us about Joan. So Ray and Joan meet in a, they're both musicians. They're both married to different people. Yes. And Joan Crock was playing piano, as she did quite often, because it was part of the way she earned her living, in a very fancy restaurant in St. Paul, Minnesota. And her boss wanted to buy a McDonald's franchise. He was wealthy. He owned movie theaters. He owned this fancy restaurant. And he'd heard about this McDonald's or this fast food game, and he wanted to get into Mm -hmm. it. St. Louis Park is where he built his franchise, but that's a suburb of St. Paul, and all of this was developing, and he saw a good business opportunity. And so Ray came to town. He walked in. He saw Joan at the piano. He, as a pianist, was impressed by her amazing piano playing. She was also quite beautiful. She was much younger. She eventually married Ray. Lots of twists and turns and another wife or two in there in the meantime. But yes, so that's who Joan was. And that's a really cool story. So they're very wealthy, but she is this great philanthropist. It's more complicated than that. So he became very wealthy and then he died and she inherited his wealth. She inherited his baseball team and she inherited a ranch and she inherited a major controlling interest in McDonald's. And it was after that that she became a philanthropist because she was left in this situation and and a a huge civic booster in San Diego, which is where they'd wound up moving. But when I first told my literary agent that I wanted to write a book about a great philanthropist, he sort of went, ho-hum, who cares about rich people sitting around writing checks? And I said, but this woman didn't sit around writing checks. She funded and was instrumental in the creation of the first addiction treatment programs in our country. Uh, She funded the peace movement, the no nukes movement in the 80s. She was an incredibly engaged and interesting person. But not publicly as a McDonald's thing. It's not like this is McDonald's money going to make all this. Right. It was my money, my her personal money. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because it doesn't sound like McDonald's. <laughs> you know, there's this tug of war thing culturally going on here between what we think about McDonald's and then the work that she did. 200%. That's why I wrote the book, because it's such an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. Unfortunately, people who read don't usually want to think about McDonald's. So I love and welcome any chance to talk about this, because a lot of people are very snobbish about learning the history. Really, the history of fast food is the history of American central, well, the world's culture in the 20th century. As you said, it's not a simple history. It's a history that brings in all different kinds of elements and other things that is fascinating. And McDonald's is more than just a restaurant. It is a cultural phenomenon. It is part of American history. A really important part of American history, really. Yes. And it reflects what was going on in a wider sense here, too. Yeah. So like it or not, yes. (laughs) It's good to understand it. There we go. McDonald's as cultural barometer and other things. Lisa, you've got a fascinating writing career. You're drawn, I know, into exciting, interesting stories. Behind all your work is there is a nub, an interesting story. Thank you very much for joining us. You should, I can't believe like when you sent in your like first draft of this, you didn't go, I'm going to go for McDonald's. <laughs> 
Maybe some good French fries or a good milkshake, but no, no, no. Life is too short. I want the good one. Actually, I did quit a job once and go out for a very fancy hamburger and fries after I did that, but that was after I wrote that book, so. <laughs> Brilliant. Hey, Lisa, well, listen, good luck. I won't ask you what you're writing about now unless well, you want you to Well, you can. Tell us. I'm can working we? on a private biography for a very wealthy man who's a very interesting guy who you've never heard of, no one's ever heard of, but he's a, a very wealthy man who developed an entire iconic, now iconic neighborhood in my native borough of Brooklyn. So I'll leave you with that breadcrumb of a clue, but I've never done this. Uh, well, actually I've done it a couple of times where I've worked for people who thought they wanted to write a memoir. So it's not fun <laughs> to do a memoir. So it's always good if you no. <laughs> can afford to hire someone else to do it for you. So here I am. I always wanted to hire a ghostwriter, but who is actually a ghost, <laughs> like a supernatural. Like you'd have to do your first draft via the Ouija board, like a proper dead <laughs> wait i'm writing that down that seems like a hollywood script and since they're on strike maybe don't we can steal get it the, that's yeah, mine the, okay you gotta do it all right <laughs> anyway lisa i'll let you go because you've got some ghostwriting to do i do i do yes. thank you for filling us in on everything mickey d oh my god thank you for asking me it's been a pleasure, pleasure and i pleasure. hope it illuminates something i don't know what but <laughs> <laughs> The world has changed. Hey, the world has changed. You're right. It's a pleasure, you guys. Thanks again. Thank you. So there we go. That is the origin story of the Golden Arches of McDonald's. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, go and listen to other episodes. And if you enjoy those episodes, don't forget to tell your friends and family all about it. Don't forget to hit subscribe, etc, etc. And don't forget, of course, if you've got a suggestion for a topic or a story you'd like us to cover, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com or give me a poke on social media. I'll see you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code 
patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.